I'm Stacy, and this is Drew. We are so um, honored to be uh, to be here and to get to talk to you guys about what happens in this building um, outside of Sunday. Um, I've been a part of Fortress since 2003, which is unbelievable. <laughs> I came as a volunteer uh, to kind of surprise a friend of my family who had gotten the job as the preaching minister at what was then Fortress Church before we were a nonprofit. And um, he was this big, burly black guy, former cop, super tough, but he was scared to death to come be the preacher in an inner city neighborhood, primarily to homeless people at the time, because it was completely out of his, I mean, he, he grew up totally middle class suburban, suburban, suburban <laughs> uh, guy, and he was just really nervous. And so just kind of as a surprise, my family and I decided to surprise him on his first Sunday. Um, I am still here <laughs> many years later, 19, 18 years later. He left after six weeks. It was not a good fit for him. <laughs> um, but I am so grateful because otherwise I would have, I would have never thought that working in um, an impoverished community with children was never the trajectory of my life. I, I don't want to work with kids. I don't want to be a teacher. It's not my gift. I did my time doing Sunday school for many, many years. And um, in fact, I came to Fortress and I said, I'll do anything, but don't make me teach. Don't put me in the classroom. And of course, I had to do my turn in the classroom. Um, but what I did find over the years is that there were so many ways that I could use my gifts and my talents and my skills to serve the mission of Fortress, which I am deeply passionate about. Um, so that w that's how I came to be here. Drew, I've known for about 12 years, I think. He was the uh, camp director at Camp of the Hills, which is the camp down in the hill country where we send our fortress kids every summer. Um, and we've been doing that since the late 90s, since before we were a nonprofit as well. Yep. So my kids aren't used to being back in person at church yet. <laughs> They're used to running around while we're Zooming. So fun times, we're figuring it out. So like Stacy said, I've been involved with Fortress for a long time. Uh, I worked at Camp of the Hills, a Christian camp that served kids coming from at-risk and low-income communities. And I love it. I loved getting to share how much God loves kids with them. Yeah, this is a microphone. So, I've been working with Fortress Kids for about 20 years, but I just got hired here full-time uh, three weeks ago. So, I'm really excited to be here, and I'm excited my kids actually go to the preschool here. So, not only do I believe in this place because I've seen it at work for years in the lives of other kids, but I'm getting to see our teachers and our staff pour their love into my kids who are great and also a handful. So we're making sure that y'all are well aware of that. So <laughs> doing your part. <laughs> so Fortress Church um, over the years really realized that we couldn't do both ministries well. We started off doing homeless ministry, but then soon found out that we were serving as many families and children who live in this neighborhood as we were homeless people who were just kind of moving through the neighborhood. And we, uh, it just got to a point where with one budget and one staff, we couldn't continue to do both of them well. 
And so we had to kind of focus and concentrate on one. There are so many awesome ministries right up the street a mile um, off Lancaster that will serve the homeless. And really, Fortress was just one more stop on a list of places where they could get support and help and hope. But there was nothing in this neighborhood for families who lived here. And so um, our church leadership committed to praying over, over it for six months before, you know, making a final decision and announcing it. But it was so clear from the very beginning that we needed to establish something specifically for the kids and families. So in 2005, Fortress Youth Development Center was established as a nonprofit. Um, our programs have evolved and changed and grown so much over the years, but what remains the same is the underlying current of everything we do, and that is that we want our children and adults and staff to all believe that they are children of God with the ability to achieve their dreams. It does not matter if you're born into this neighborhood, into generational poverty, or if you're born into a family in Westlake that, you know, <laughs> has uh, three vacation homes around the world and and all kinds of sports cars in the garage. It, and doesn't matter. I mean, we are all children of God, and we all have that, that puts us on an even playing field right there. And he has plans for us that we cannot dream or imagine, that we cannot, we don't even know how to fathom the dreams that God has for us. And we want our kids to believe that because it's so true that what they're born into isn't the final chapter. It's only the beginning, and the ch final chapters have yet to be written. But we do remind them that, um, man, I used to use Kobe Bryant, and I'm still not out of the habit of using Kobe Bryant <laughs> as my story. May he rest in peace. Um, we tell our kids, you know what, maybe when Kobe Bryant was a little boy, God knew he was going to grow up and be Kobe Bryant and be this awesome basketball player. Let's just assume that that, that was true. But could Kobe have wrecked that plan if that was God's plan? He absolutely could have. He had to stay in school. He had to make good grades so that he could play basketball. Otherwise, you know, he, you can't if you're not making good grades. He had to eat his vegetables and stay healthy. He had to not make bad decisions like trying out drugs or getting involved in gangs or any of the other things that might have come his way as a teenager. He had to practice even and especially on the days when he didn't want to. He had to listen to his mama. I mean, he had to make good choices along the way. That was still his responsibility um, because God's not going to, he's not Santa Claus. And we also want our kids to believe that God is real, but he also gives us, you know, our own heart and our own will. And so we're here to guide those kids toward that future and, and give them the tools and the, the resources and the hope uh, that they need to achieve those dreams. So our mission is building bridges from poverty to promise. Um, and we take a multi-generational approach to doing that. We don't just work with kids, although that is our primary, that's where we started, and that's kind of always going to be the heart of what we do. But we can't really change the trajectory for our kids if we're not also working with and loving their parents. Um, and even broader than that, our whole community as a whole. So at this point, I'm going to toss it off to you if you want to talk a little bit about that. Sure. So y'all probably know at least a little bit about this community that we're in. This is historic Southside, and it's a place that has a lot of rich history, uh, but it has also been scarred by a lot of really terrible things. And this is a place where, 
during Jim Crow segregation, this was where wealthy black folks were allowed to buy property and buy homes. And because of that, it's got a really, uh, this place just has so much history and so many great people have come through here and been a part of this community. Uh, but because of a lot of things that have happened since then, uh, this neighborhood is one that's really got a lot of poverty going on. So what we wanna do is be a part of this community, not with our own agenda, not with our own ideas of, hey, this is what you need. We wanna come in and do a great job of listening to the neighbors. We wanna figure out what do you care enough about to act on, because we wanna come alongside. We've heard from the Neighborhood Association, we've heard from just different individuals, and we've seen from the schools, there's a lot of care about education here. So that's one of the things that we really wanna focus in on. Beyond that, we have big neighborhood gatherings where people get to know each other. We're investing in parents. Uh, so all of our programs here, from our preschool to our after-school program, our summer program, there's no cost to our parents. But what we do have in lieu of that is parent programs where they spend hours getting to work on things that they care about. Uh, we have parenting classes, and we've got all kinds of different things for the parents to really invest in themselves. We talk about it like there are so many things that are pulling on our parents as far as their time commitments. And by having their kids at Fortress, we sort of create some space, 12 hours a year at least, for them to spend working on themselves. And they've gotta do it because they want their kids here. But it gives them a chance to grow and build on things that they might not be able to have the time unless they had Fortress here to sort of help make that happen. So it's really exciting to be a part of that and to see leaders who are already in the community build on what God has already put in them and get to see the ways that that is transforming the community. Awesome. So um, we are relaunching our parent program in August. So, 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 so excited. We had to cancel it for COVID. And in the redesign of that, um, there are so many parents who meet that minimum 12 hours early, early, early in the year. And then they're like, what else is there that I can do? I've already taken that class. I've already taken that class. Um, I took that one last year and I've already, I took it the year before that too. So we've, there are some parents who want, many parents who want more and want to uh, see the value in it. And so super excited that our new relaunch of the parent program will allow those parents to to get on a level up kind of system where everybody starts at the, you know, the base level and everybody's required to get those 12 hours. But once you go beyond that, then there's some um, kind of rewards and incentives once you get there. Maybe you have a, a, pay, a parking lot, I mean, a parking space in the front that's reserved for you so you don't have to park way out there and walk to get your kids. I mean, a little simple things, but also bigger things such as once you've done this class, uh, once and graduated to the next one, um, and because now we have classes that bridge uh, one to the other, then you can be an assistant uh, co-presenter for that one class, and you're learning leadership skills and planning skills, and it just goes on and on and on, where eventually our big dream is to have parents who are 
qualified and eager and willing to be uh, on our board of directors as former Fortress parents. How awesome would that be? By the way, y'all know that Brent Doré is on our board of directors. If you didn't, you do now. So that's why y'all are in this building, because he strong-armed me. No, I'm just kidding. He just asked. Um, so really, really cool. What we do with the kids, we start with preschool, uh, six weeks through fifth grade. Um, our preschool goes through age four. And it's just a school readiness program. It's not just daycare. It is so much more than daycare. Um, our kids are, are in demogra this demographic in areas like this across the nation, not just here in Fort Worth, our kids start kindergarten behind. And that's hard to imagine. How do you start kindergarten behind? But if you lack the social-emotional skills and you don't know your last name or... <laughs> your mom's real name, or I mean, those, those little things that you don't think about that we teach in everyday interactions with our kids are sometimes being lost when you're living in the tyranny of the moment of poverty, when you're just surviving all the time, those things get lost. And so we ready our children for, for kindergarten so that they can be successful. By the time they get to third grade, we want them reading on grade level. And this is one of my favorite things to boast about. Um, Fort Worth ISD, you're probably well familiar with the fact that our third grade reading numbers are dismal. 33% of our kids in the district read on grade level. That means 66% of our kids are below grade level in third grade. And the reason that is so important is because in the fourth grade, you stop learning how to read and you start applying what you're reading. So if you are behind in reading and can't understand what's, what you're supposed to be reading, you, you just continue to fall further and, further, and further behind. There are so many studies that show that if you are not reading on grade level in third grade, you are 50% or twice as likely to enter the prison system uh, before you graduate high school, twice as likely to not finish high school. So we want our kids to be reading on third grade level. And I'm at our school, Van St. Gwen, it's 18% there. At Fortress, it's 80%. So when we had that data, only as 10 kids. So eight of our 10 kids were reading on grade level. Those kids started with us as preschoolers. The two that were not reading on grade level didn't come to us till first and second grade. So it's not a coincidence that that early intervention is really the key. And so um, longevity is the other thing we wanna do. If we get kids in in preschool, we wanna keep them through elementary school. And we have a 90% uh, re-enrollment rate every year because our parents, Again, see the value in what we're doing and want their kids to be here and do what it takes to keep them here. To come to after school, they have to attend Van St. Gwen. They have to be in attendance to get on our bus to come here. So that helps with attendance there too, a school that is plagued by absenteeism. So we have a really beautiful working relationship with the school where um, we share data even, testing data and, and homework uh, obstacles if those teachers see and they'll communicate with us so that we can work together to serve those same kids and give them um, better outcomes and, and hopeful chances. I do want to um, address two big myths about poverty. Um, so many times in white middle-class America we look at people in poverty or children who are hungry in America and we think how? Why? It doesn't even make sense. This is America, and we all have the same opportunities. We all have, the, I mean, it, it's, it's America. There's no reason for somebody to live in poverty. I want you to understand that, six, let me get this number right. That's why I pulled this paper out. 
two-thirds of our parents are employed, and yet, and 33% are unemployed, and yet 84% of our families still live below the poverty line, 54% on less than 12000 a year. These are working parents. They're not lazy. They're not refusing to work and, and just living off the system. But there are so many odds against them if they don't have a high school education or if they did graduate but their reading level is at a 7th, 8th, ninth grade level. Uh, child care is a huge burden for families in poverty. So often you cannot afford to work or more than part-time when your kids are in school. Um, and wages are so low. And there's a huge job turnover because of that and the child care issues. And I just want you to know that the parents that we serve and parents like them all over, uh, all over this neighborhood and beyond are not sure. Some of them have made terrible decisions that have got them where they are. But most of them are hardworking, good parents uh, who want more for their kids. And they're working hard to break the cycle that they've themselves been born into. Um, do you have anything you want to add there? Um, just, it's so hard when you see kids who you think, oh man, how, how can you live when things are so rough? When your parents are working multiple jobs to try to keep things afloat and they don't have time to read to you at night because they just got off a double shift and they're exhausted. or they're doing everything they can to keep things afloat and it's just it's heartbreaking at times but I get to see teachers and staff members every day being mentors and helping helping these parents have something they can rely on so they know they've got people who when they bring their kids here we're not just going to send them home at the drop of the hat because things went a little amiss because things were, you know, a little hard at home and then their kids misbehaved a little bit. We want to do everything we can to help these parents and these kids and these families succeed. So like she said, we don't want parents to lose their job because their kid got kicked out of daycare and they had to take the rest of the day off. What we're doing is helping these families have a chance to work for something better. And that's something I, I'm really thankful to be a part of. So there are two things I wanna to talk to y'all about that you can get involved in as a church. One, I don't know, y'all may have already talked about it, but our Back to School Bash is our first uh, post-COVID big community event. It's coming up Friday the 13th uh, next month. Um, I know I, I didn't realize that until I said it out loud that it's Friday the 13th. That's, that means it's going to be awesome. Um, I hope it's not a full moon, too, because we've had that, too. So our kids, this year the district is providing all of their school supplies, which is usually uh, what, part of what we do for them. So that's an awesome blessing. Instead, what that means, we get to now provide them um, a uniform and a new pair of shoes and a belt, which is required as part of the uniform. And most of our kids never have belt uh, or new underwear and socks for the year, you know, because those things aren't seen and you don't have to spend money on them. So all of our kids will get a backpack that they've, uh, we, we've determined the theme that they want, whether it's Spider-Man or we've done a poll with all of our kids so we know what their favorite color is and what they would love to see on their backpack. Um, and then those will be filled with uniform and shoes and socks and underwear and belts for each kid. 
And then they also get all of the, the supplies from the district. Also that night at Back to School Bash, it's open to the whole community. Only our enrolled kids get the backpack, but we'll have lots of school supplies and extra underwear and things like that for kids in the community who come. And uh, we, we, it's the, the theme is super bash and it's superheroes. And so we have all these little superhero pencils that we are literally going to pray over. And then we're going to put a cape on those pencils that says this is a super pencil because it's been prayed over for your school year. So when those kids use that pencil this year, hopefully they'll remember that um, they are loved by people who don't even know them and who haven't even seen them. So that's one thing you can do is pray over the pencils that we're going to give away. You can come to the Back to School Bash, sign up on our on our website. Um, I, I sent Ben and y'all the link for the sign up, right? So you can send it. Okay, cool. Um, we run all kinds of game booths where you can help kids earn points, and then they use those points to go in the store, the store will probably be right here, and get extra school supplies and the extra things they want. Um, you could donate to it as far as the school supplies or packs of underwear or whatever. Um, all of that info will be on the website that, that uh, y'all will get a link to. And then the other thing coming up is our fourth and fifth grade program. We need adult mentors. And do you want to talk about this? Do you want me to? <laughs> okay. I love this program because it allows kids to figure out, okay, what are they passionate about? What do they care about? So if there's a kid who really loves computers, we do everything in our power to find somebody who is passionate about that, and maybe that's their career, and we pair those people together. That way, they can maybe work on a project. Maybe they build a computer together over the course of a semester or a year. If they realize through that time, hey, turns out computers are way harder than I thought, and I don't like this as much as I thought. I want to be a zookeeper. Then, you know, fourth and fifth graders, they change their minds sometimes. We try to find ways to help connect them with whatever they're passionate about. That way they've got another incentive to stay in school, to say, okay, well, we want you to be able to chase your dreams and we want to make sure your dreams don't get crushed and then you just decide, okay, well, I'll just be what I've always seen. I, I, I'm not good enough to be a basketball player. I might feel like, okay, I can do, I, maybe I'll just work at you know, a local restaurant and that's all I can be. If that's what they want to do, great. Let's let them, you know, shadow somebody who is cooking or doing something like that. But if they want to be a police officer, let's get them with a police officer or somebody who works in law enforcement. If they want to be a nurse, let's find them somebody who's a mentor in the healthcare uh, realm and give them a chance to see what they're dreaming about in real life. That way they can say, okay, this is achievable. And then they can say, okay, well, if it's achievable, how do I work to get there? How can I get my grades up so that I can go to nursing school someday? Or whatever it is that they want to do, we want to help them grab a hold of it. So that, I really love that program, and I'm excited about it. And I would love to find ways to plug y'all in to whatever you care about find a kid who cares about it too. That way you're sharing what you are passionate about with somebody 
who might just be getting their first steps along that pathway. Or you might have a friend or a coworker who you think would be great for this program and just share that with them. Um, it requires a two-year commitment. You start with them in fourth grade and you commit to meeting with them weekly during the school year through fifth grade. Um, and your job is just to love on them and encourage them and help them explore their gifts and skills. And uh, if it's not one that you have, then you're committed to helping connect them with someone who it is. And you remain their mentor, even if they decide, I want to create an app. If it were me, I'd be like, <laughs> who do I know that can help me help this kid create an app? Um, and Fortress will also help. You're not thrown to the wolves to do that. But th that's the, the point. If you don't know what to dream, you can't dream it. If it has never been presented to you or you've never seen it or you've never known anyone who went to college, you're never going to dream of going to college. If you never knew a dad that came home from work every night and had dinner with his family because you've never seen that in your community, you're not going to dream of being that kind of dad who goes to work and comes home every night and has dinner with his family. We want our kids to see what is available, the dreams that they can dream, and that's only able, possible through mentors. So the best way to do that is go to our website, fortressfw.org slash volunteer. Go ahead and fill out our volunteer form. It doesn't mean you're making a commitment to anything. It just gives us a way to contact you and say, what are you interested in doing? Even if it's you're like, I love taking pictures. I want to come to an event and take pictures sometime. And it's a one-time deal. Or maybe it's I want to come every week and rock babies. Or I want to be a mentor for your fourth and fifth grade. There are a million and one ways that we can plug people in. So... With that said, let me tell you a quick bit about our building and how we use it because uh, I there's some things I want you to specifically pray over when we do our next thing. We have a courtyard <clears throat> in the middle of our, of our building that you can get through um, through our office suite is the best way. And we are going to turn that into a learning outdoor learning classroom this year where the kids will have... Um, access to water play and sand play and gardening, which we did this spring and it was a huge hit. You, the kids thought they were rock stars when they harvested their first cucumbers and bell peppers. It was amazing. They could not believe it. Um, we grew butterflies this summer, so we'll plant um, a butterfly-specific garden so that we can attract butterflies and continue kind of that learning. Um, I want to pray over that space that God just provides the, what we need to turn that into a learning classroom outside. Then our giant, our giant lot right next to our, our parking lot on this side of the building is where our kids play every day. Um, so that day, that is daily, 80 kids are running around laughing, screaming, pushing, uh, having, having fun and having fights and, <laughs> and, and just being kids. And it's one of the only places in this neighborhood where they can. Most of them don't have grass they can run on at home. In fact, true story, when we first were building at our old building a, a, a courtyard area, we asked them what, their, what they wanted to see in it. Number one was a swimming pool, which, <laughs> no. <laughs> Number two was a snack bar, which I thought was hilarious. And again, we were like, mm, no. Number three was grass. They just wanted grass. And it was shocked us. We were like, really? You know, they, I, we thought they'd want these big play things and towers to climb. They just wanted grass. So we feel so blessed that in this new building, they have a whole lot of grass. Um, so, uh, And then finally, just a prayer of thanks. You cannot appreciate the building that we get to operate in now without having seen where we came from and where we were for 25 years. Um, it was a super cool building. 
Um, but also, man, when I say it has charm, it had charm, too. I mean, it was 115 years old and not well suited for what we do. This was built as a school. And then in the middle of a pandemic, when the world thought we were crazy for considering purchasing this building, God knew. I mean, he just kept giving us sign after sign after sign. This is what you're supposed to do. And I was like, man, I can't even tell people because people are going to think I'm nuts. <laughs> it's, we're in a pandemic. We just laid off two-thirds of our staff, but we want to buy a building, and we have no money. And he made it happen. So the final prayer I want you all to pray, other than being thankful for this building, is that the building that we used as collateral to buy this, we have a bridge loan from a very, very patient lender, that that building will sell. It's been on the market since November. And we've gotten one viable offer in that time, which came Friday. <laughs> Do you even know about that yet? <laughs> um, and it's still below what we need it to be. Um, so we will begin tomorrow the kind of negotiating process with the uh, prospective buyer. So just pray that that goes well, if that's who God wants in that building, and, um, and that we know how to approach it correctly and with grace, because I want to tell them, that, are you kidding me? Come on, come up. And that's probably not the gracious way to do it. So... Some, just some specific things for you guys to pray over. I have two minutes. I just want to say that it's, a, it's one of the great blessings of my life to get to be on this board. I love that we meet here. Uh, you now saw Stacy talk about how passionate she is. We met at the world's worst craft fair where Julie and her were at two booths next to each other. It was freezing cold and made a friend for life there and Lo and behold, now we're meeting here. I can't tell you how crazy it was, I think, when Stacy came to the board and said, we should buy this building. And I remember thinking, I'm, on, I'm generally going to follow whatever Stacy says, but it's a little crazy, but I'm on board. And to see what they've been able to accomplish here is truly incredible. Um, she didn't even hit adding the parent. There's a, there's a family... Um, um, community pantry now we can double the size or even triple the size of the number of families and kids that we can serve here and it's it is truly amazing just to watch from a board position and 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 see what they're able to do so i i when ben came and said hey do you know any anything about fortress could we think we can meet there i was like well, yeah I, I do and i know and i just never imagined that this would happen and i'm so thankful that we're able to hear stacy's passion and I can't wait to see the new relationships forming here. So um, I encourage, if you, if you have any questions about volunteering, and I'm happy to answer them. I connect you to the right people. But just I'm so thankful that we were able to hear from you and so thankful for this organization and what it's doing. Yeah, can we thank Stacy and Drew and Brent? Why not, too? So. Yeah, and so th like this matters. We're we're here, and when we entered into this conversation with Stacy and, and the staff, we said we don't want this just to be a, a tenant kind of relationship. We're really glad for the space, and yet uh, we we just really hold strongly to to things that the scriptures teach us. And one of the things that the scriptures teach us, God actually says to Israel when they're exiled into Babylon, He says, "Seek the welfare of the city that I've sent you to where I've sent you, and pray to the Lord on its behalf." Um, and what Stacey and Drew just ga gave us a little bit more insight in into is some of the need of this city, this literal city that we're in of Fort Worth. It's not the only need that Fort Worth has by any means, but it's a little bit more of this need. And also, we, we believe that, that we're, we're here. Like, we're, we're sent here. We're, 
we're allowed to meet in this space. And so we, we want to follow that pattern. It's not literally what the verse is talking about, but there's something to it of going, we want to seek the welfare of this place, of this ministry, of this, uh, of our hosts, and also pray to God on, on their behalf. Um, and so th- there are some occasional things. Just as a church meeting here, we are going to pop in occasionally. We're going to encourage folks to fill out the volunteer form and just like at least do some of the back to school bashes or if, 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 if Salt and Light has excess funds, we want to turn to, to, to our host and say, is there anything that would benefit you with it? And so we want to enter in at least occasionally as an entire church and seek the welfare of Fortress. Um, and for some of you who have been asking and praying and coming out of COVID or, you know, some who've who are in Fort Worth and didn't have like a specific mission field because you just moved to Fort Worth during COVID or that kind of stuff. If there's, if there's anything in what Stacy and Drew share that kind of stirs you, there's also more ongoing ways like the ones they shared, but also dozens of other ways, a hundred other ways um, to enter in. And so if God's stirring that, we want to create space for both the occasional seeking the welfare of Fortress, but also the ongoing uh, well, uh, seeking of the welfare, but also want to pray to God on, his, on, on Fortress's behalf. And so we are uh, going to take time and, and just go pray over the space, over the, the, can we go all the way through into the courtyard, that kind of stuff? Yeah, wander the building. Um, if you knock something over, tell us, we can pay for it, whatever else. But, um, but, but, there you go. Yeah, if you leave, we'll make sure and prop the doors open. But but through the hallways and into the into the doorways and different rooms and that kind of stuff. And kiddos, there are kids who meet in this in this space during school, after school, all summer long. So you can just pray, God, would you bless the kids who are here? They're just they're your age. They're just like you in so many ways. Um, grown ups. There's grown-ups who utilize the space and are served by the space and serve the space. So you can pray as simple a prayer as that or uh, wh- whatever else. We, are, we want to take a little bit of time and pray for um, this building, but, but, but the things that, that happen in this building. So if you will, be back in here at 5 after. So we'll kind of spread out, pray, be back in here at 5 after, okay? And we will, yeah, I know. Um, and then we'll take more time afterwards to pray as well, but, but want to... Let's make it 10 after. Um, and, and then grab whatever amount of snacks you need to get your kids or yourself through. We're going to go long tonight. Grab coloring sheets and that kind of stuff. But this, but this matters, you guys. And for me, like I'm a schedule guy and that kind of stuff. But we've been wanting to, to hear and press into this and, and worship God in this way. So you're right. We need to not truncate that. So be back in here at 10 after. And then uh, we will wrap up a little bit later tonight than normal. So ready? Go. Pray. See you at 10 after. Get settled. There we go. Okay. Uh, I want to introduce to you my friend Kendrick Banks, uh, Kendrick and Amelia, and Titus and Nora somewhere. Uh, anyway, so uh, they... Uh, I, I got to meet Kendrick. He reminded my family today the month after Travis was born. So I've known him for getting getting along with seven years now. And Kendrick went through Kendrick and Amelia went through our church planning process with Soma. They were living in Monroe, Louisiana at the time, and they moved to Oak Cliff, where God was leading them to move and plant a church. And they arrived in. February 2020. Um, so they have not yet planted a church because. February 2020 in a new place. Uh, so that they've been faithful. They're still in the path that God has them in. And then as with Brad, 
joining us last week, um, Kendrick and Brad and I and a few of our other teachers are teaching through this summer together. So um, help me welcome Kendrick to Salt and Light. Give him a hand to welcome him. Thank you. He asked me to read Psalm 2, so I'm going to read Psalm 2, then pray for him. So Psalm 2, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath. God will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill, and I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son, and today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, Carol, heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling, kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled, blessed are all who take refuge in him. Father, would you uh, teach us by the power of your spirit today, would you bless my friend and my brother Kendrick, would you... uh, Give him clarity. Would you help him press so into you um, that he is speaking your words over us and to us? And would you guide us and lead us and teach us through him? It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, brother. Good evening. It's evening. I almost said morning. I didn't have to tell you that. I could have just acted like I didn't. Good evening. I'm glad to be here. Ben Conley is a blessing my life. To be a blessing to him in any way is an honor, it really is, but also to have the honor of being before you, brothers and sisters, my siblings in the faith, as a family of God about this mission, wanting to see the world look different, look more like God's kingdom than it does right now. I'm so grateful to join in that work, and thank thank you. Thank you for doing this, for investing your life to this. It's beautiful. I'm sincere. I'm not just saying thank you. Really, thank you. All right, so we have, the last couple weeks, y'all have been in a series that I get to jump into, The Truest Story of the World, is what it's called. That's no question mark. It sounded like it. Truest Story of the World. The truest story. Truest. So there's a lot of stories in the world, but this one is the truest. Everybody has their ideas of what's going on. Everyone has a story. Every individual has a story. Trying to create our own stories. But there's one story that is the most true, and it's the most important. And I have the honor of preaching the entire Old Testament today. <laughs> Take out a few chapters on the, on the ends. I get the big chunk in the middle. Uh, it really is an honor to consider all of God's story as this one big thing he's doing. And that's the question, what is God doing? Uh, and we're going to zoom in on some important aspects of it, the promises he gives to his people but I want to also give you an overview of it. So this, that's where we're going. It's not going to be as long as it could be. Uh, it could be like all night. And if we were real saints, we would... I'm just kidding. But <laughs> I've taught my son to courtesy laugh. It's a <laughs> so here's where we're going. We're going to look at 
I'm going to start with the end, actually, the end of our section. We're going to look at the promise God gives to King David at the very beginning, and that's in 2 Samuel 7. So if you have a Bible and you want to open to 2 Samuel 7, you can do that. We'll be there in just a minute. And we're going to look at that, and then we're going to kind of give an overview from where we left off with the rebellion all the way up into this scene where God gives a promise to King David. Okay, it's going to be a quick overview, but what I'm hoping is that many of you are familiar with Christian stories, Christian ideas, individuals in the Old Testament, even though you may skip over it, uh, but you get these ideas. I want to try to connect some dots. So it may not be easy to follow if the Bible's brand new to you, but hopefully you can grasp the, the concept of God's faithfulness to his people. His promises are sure, and he always is faithful. And that's the emphasis I hope we walk away with. And secondly, that we all realize we're a part of this story. That it's the story and everyone is a part of it. All right. So in First and Second Samuel, just a little bit of background. Uh, it's about Saul, the first king of Israel, and David, the, the good king. David, the best king Israel ever had. It's these stories of the rise and fall of Saul and then David and his sons, and, and it gets kind of messy. But First and Second Samuel is really just one scroll, all right? So we're telling the story of these guys, but it actually starts with the story of this woman named Hannah. And Hannah wants a child. She's burdened for a child. She desperately wants one. And she, even though this is a, a season of Israel's life where they're very far from God, she seems to, to know there's a king. There's this coming king one who's going to restore all things. She's going to God, asking for a child. She commits to dedicate this child to him if he would just give her a child, and he does. And then in, in 1 Samuel chapter 2, you see this song that she sings, and it's a beautiful song, emphasizing these attributes of God, the, the king that's coming, and that God would favor the humble and oppose the proud. She kind of slips that in. He favors the humble, and he opposes the proud, and that becomes this repetitive thing, and we begin to see it in the story as it plays out in Samuel. Saul is not humble. Saul is a good-looking dude. He's taller than everybody. Scripture says that. I'm not just telling you what I think about him. He's, everybody thinks Saul's awesome, and that's why they choose him to be king, but he's prideful. In fact, he's afraid. He, he, gets, he gets caught up in thinking everything has to be his way, and God takes it from him. And then David is a man of humility. He's compassionate. David trusts the Lord like Saul didn't trust the Lord. The things that make David seem weak are the very things that make him a strong king. He's the youngest brother. He, he was off in the field watching the sheep play in his harp. I mean, he killed bears and lions too, but he also played the harp. So just imagine David, not your typical king. He's the guy that God wants. And we, we see this play out in the story. And the Lord conquers people through David. And the Lord established his kingdom through David. The Lord puts Jerusalem on Zion through David. He unites all of his people into one kingdom by David. He's a good king. Before he makes some pretty horrible decisions, he's a good king. And God responds to David in this, in this scene where David is talking to Nathan, the prophet he corresponds with God with, and he's telling him, we need to, we need to build a temple for God. I have this nice cedar house from the cedars of Lebanon. We need God to have a house. David has this great idea. He tells Nathan to go talk to God about it. And God responds with this bit of a rebuke. He's like, why do you think I need a house? I've been with my people all these years. I have never had a house. Why do you think I need one now? And the rebuke turns into a promise. And he says, you know what? I'm the one establishing a house. 
I'm the one building your house. I'm going to build a kingdom through you. And he tells Nathan, go tell David I've said this. And that's where we pick it up in 2 Samuel 7. Sorry, this mic is bothering me. I got a small ear. I think that's what it is. Sorry. All right, 2 Samuel 7. We're going to start in the middle of verse 11. Hope you're okay with that. Nathan spoke to David on behalf of the Lord. He says, the Lord will make you a house when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers. So it's not going to be you, David. It's someone coming after you. I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be with him or I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I, took, as I took it from Saul, whom I will put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. God of all creation says this to David. Through David, his people, God's people, would bless all nations under a king that would rule forever an anointed king, a future king, a unique son of God type king, a forever king. And at this point in the story, we should be able to understand no earthly king can be this king. As we just heard Psalm chapter 2, it's referring to this king that apparently even to the people of God, he's beyond us. He has a kingdom like no other. In fact, it's a little bit scary in that psalm, but it ends with this beautiful thing that if we take refuge in this king, we're blessed. If we take refuge in this king, we're blessed. And there is this understood idea, if you don't, you're destroyed. There's one king. And refuge in him, you're safe. In fact, you're blessed. And as we'll see, we're blessed to be a blessing. But outside of him, there's trouble. So that's where we're headed, to this king. It's an impressive promise. And the Lord will be faithful. But let me ask you something. Why does this matter? I think we can get caught up in churchy mode and hear these churchy things. Why does this matter? In fact, let me ask you a question I actually want you to answer to. Why does the Bible matter? Any ideas? Why does the Bible even matter? I don't know if there's a wrong answer. But it's an important question. Anyone want to guess why the Bible matters? It's the truth. Because Jesus. I told him that too. That's the answer. The Bible matters because the title of the series, it's the truest story of everything. If we believe it. No, it is the truest story of everything. And whether or not you believe it determines where you are in that story. Even non-believers, even the enemies of God are in this story. They're just where they don't want to be. And I want to challenge you this morning to consider, is that me? Do I believe this story is true? Do I see that the Bible, the Bible matters? Does any of this really matter to us? And a story is important, isn't an easy way to transfer information, but it's more than that. A story is good for certain reasons. What makes a story good, a movie or show, anything? I saw y'all talking earlier, so I know you can. 
It's entertaining. What else? It sends a message. Beautiful. What else makes a story good? What's that? The rising action? Yes. That's a great answer. What else makes a story good? A problem that needs to be solved. What else? What'd you say? A happy ending. That would be nice. Some stories are good and they don't have happy endings, but you feel something. You may not be happy, but you feel something. It's good to feel, right? I think, so those are all right answers, but I would say a, a good story is determined by a good author. It's kind of a cheat. You can't have a good story unless you have a good author, an author who is creative and empathetic and artistic, but also logical because it has to have structure, it has to make sense. An author who, who's intellectual, he can connect with your mind, but he's also intuitive. It drop, you feel it. It drops down into who you are. Sometimes you don't even know why you like it. You just like it. Stories are good when the author knows the audience intimately, when he, know, he can anticipate or she can anticipate I didn't mean to be sexist. He or she can anticipate what the audience will feel, what the audience will think. A good author knows how to write a good story because he knows who the story's for, and he knows who the story is about. And I'm saying he on purpose, trying to draw some connections. I want us to consider how this story comes together. There's, There's something to be gained in a good story, There's something being felt in a good story. I felt along the way, but there's also this larger purpose. It's almost like everything is real, and it really happened in the story of David or whomever it is. It really happened, but it points to something bigger, something better, something beyond. David was an actual king of God's people, but there's a king coming that is better. That's what we get when we read the story. The things in it matter for a purpose beyond what they matter for in that story. And this is the the greatest epic of all. So kids are doing Narnia, right? Narnia is awesome. Lord of the Rings, that's awesome. Star Wars, Star Trek, whatever side you want to be on or both. They have great stories. They're great characters. It's woven. They have different, they wrote languages. There's poetry. Like there's a whole world you could go into. Well, this one is more true. This one is more real. This one is the truest of all. It's beyond what any of us can. I hope you're excited to consider the story of God. He's doing something. And the more we can understand his story, the better we can live as we ought to live because we'll find ourselves in the story. We'll find ourselves freer if we live according to the story the author has written. In fact, that's what faith is. It's letting go of your story, your plan, your kingdom, and submitting yourself fully to his story and his kingdom. So the Bible is loaded with information, but don't let it be merely a consumption of information. It's not about learning what to do. It's learning who you are in this truest story. And the Lord is the author, in case you missed it. The Lord is the author. His spirit brings us understanding. And the story is Jesus. He's the main character. He's the hero of this biblical drama. So I'm going to give you a little review in case you've not been here the last couple weeks. So we've been created in the image of God. We've been created to image God in the world, us, all human beings. Just as you said, we're all children of God. We image him in the world. Now, that image has been broken in our rebellion. We ran from it. We're meant to 
to cultivate. We're meant to steward his creation. We're meant to spread his glory throughout the world as image bearers of the Lord. We have a purpose in the story to share his glory to the ends of the earth that everyone would know how good this author is, how good this God is. And it's been broken because of our rebellion. It's been broken because we wanted to usurp the throne. We wanted autonomy. We wanted to control the narrative. And we broke it. I wanted to bring a mirror and just shatter it for a dramatic effect. We were supposed to image God and it's been shattered. And no matter what you do, you cannot put this mirror back together and make it the same as it was. You can try to glue all the pieces together, but we're frantic. We're anxious trying to get it back where it was. And we can't do it. We can't put the mirror back. We can't re-image God on our own. In fact, we're like children. Like when you think of rebellion, you may think of these evil lords ruling over, over all the nations and destroying people in their path. Think of children afraid, ashamed because they broke something that belongs to their father and they don't want to be in trouble. So they're trying to frantically put it back together. That's you. That's me. We're afraid. Now, it, it grows and matures into an evil that can be destructive, but deep inside, every human being who's lived since Adam, with the exception of one, has been broken and afraid and ashamed. But the good news is this creator, this author, has a plan. He's always had a plan. He has a way. He's not abandoning his creation. This was the way it's meant to be for his glory. And by his grace that is sufficient, by his mercy that's renewed every day, he's carrying out this plan because he's faithful even when we aren't. It turns out restoration was always the plan. He's making the mirror new again. He's doing it now. He's bringing his kingdom now. We're being restored now. We're joining in that story now. This is where we find ourselves today. The triune God, his image bearers, us, his creation being cultivated by us are meant to be united in community forever. But how? Restoration. This is where we pick it up in the Bible narrative. Restoration is being initiated by God through a promise to his people. So we have a lot to cover. We're only 20 minutes in, so we got time, right? I want to offer you an, an overview of the Old Testament pretty, pretty quickly. And I want you to consider the question, do I actually believe this story? Do I really believe it? Now, do you know it? Now, don't be like, oh, yeah, I knew that one. Oh, I heard that character. Oh, I knew that. Don't do that. Do I believe this is true? And if it is, how does it affect me? What does it say about God? What does it say about what he's doing in the world? And there's some really good news coming at the end. So let's hang on even when it gets dark. Because even through the suffering, our hope is made more sure. The Old Testament is a, a cohesive story, though we know it in bits and pieces played out by various vegetables or, or somebody with a British accent. It's one story. And so I hope I can connect these dots for you as we run through it. It's a collection of histories that kind of repeat themselves. It's poetry. It's wisdom literature. It's beautiful. It's, it's honestly literary 
art. It's literary genius. It's a masterpiece. You don't have to be a Christian to appreciate how it's all woven together. You could actually go through this story we're about to summarize with different themes and tie them together. The tree of life and tie it together throughout the story. The, the, the image of God and tie it together throughout the story. The, the prophets, the priests, and kings and how they all connect. There's so many ways to walk through. You could spend the rest of your lives invested in this book and still not fully grasp the art, the genius that it is. But if we don't see it as one story, we easily miss that and we check the box. I know the story of David and Goliath. I'm done. Move on to the next one. That's not what it is. It's the biggest, truest epic of all. So the framework we're going to build on is this. It's been broken. We broke the creation. God chooses a couple of individuals, a husband and wife, to bless. He blesses them. And then through them, he promises a nation. And he grows that nation, and he intends to bless the nation and then bless all nations through that nation. That's the framework of the whole story. God chooses individuals to build a nation, and he uses that nation, which is in the Bible, that word is just peoples, that people group to bless all people groups. In fact, all of creation will be restored through this act, through this promise. He's initiating it here in the story. So here's the overview. Last week, we, we stopped with, I think... Brad stopped with the sin, the rebellion. He didn't really go much past that. He gave me even more to cover. So Noah, so the world went really bad, okay? This is how it's going to be. I'm just going to skim through some things. I'm going to have to leave a lot out. I'm, I'm sorry. Noah built an ark. You know that story? Noah built an ark and brought on animals and his family. And God saved just Noah and those animals and flooded the rest of the world, destroying the evil that had taken over because everybody was doing whatever they wanted and trying to establish their own kingdoms. And from Noah, they gathered again as the people, and his sons had kids, and their kids had kids, and a new nation was built, and it was Babylon. It was Babel, and perhaps you've heard the, the Tower of Babel was built, because again, they're trying to establish their own kingdom and reach God. They think they know what they're doing, and they, they don't trust God, so they're doing their own thing, and God, once again, does something to stop that. He enters the story, confuses their language, and he scatters the nations. He scatters the people groups all across the globe, and he chooses one person, Abram, and his wife, Sarai, Abraham and Sarah, and he chooses them to bless them. He says, I'm going to bless you, and you're going to be a blessing. You're going to have many kids. It's strange because they're old, and they don't have any kids, so they begin to trust God for kids, and in fact, he blesses them. There's a lot of doubt involved. We'll cover that in just a minute, but he God is faithful, and he provides a son. And Father Abraham has many kids. I'm one of them, and so are you. Y'all were with me? I saw the church kids in here. And one of those kids is Isaac. And Isaac is a special kid, a, a miraculous child born to very old parents. They celebrate him, but God does this strange thing where he asks Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, and he's going to do it. He's trying to prove he is faithful, though he had made some unfaithful decisions. He's, he's demonstrating his faith to God. He trusts God's going to do something, so he's going to go through with it, and then God provides a substitute at the last minute. And Isaac lives, and he, he and his wife have children. Two of those are twins, Esau and Jacob. Jacob is known as a deceiver. He wrestles with God, and God changes his name from deceiver to wrestles with God a name that we know as Israel. So Israel has 12 sons and becomes a great nation. 12 sons, 12 tribes, one people of God. And among those 12 is Joseph, who 
strangely, isn't one of the 12 tribes. He has two sons and they're half-tribes. I'm not going to get into it. But Joseph is loved by his dad, Jacob. But he's hated by his brothers. So his brothers hatch this plan. Jacob's always bragging about his dreams and his nice coat that his dad gave him. And they don't like it. He's not as socially aware, so he doesn't realize they're hatching this plan. And he trusts them, and they betray him. Catch the feeling in the story. They betray, the brothers betray their brother. And they put him in a pit. They feel a little bit bad about it, so then they rip his cloak off of him, put blood on it, pretend he's dead, sell him into slavery. So his cloak is ripped from him. Catch the themes. He's abandoned by his brothers. He's enslaved. And he goes into Egypt, and there he's blessed by God. In fact, he's exalted in Egypt to become a king of Egypt. He, he has authority in Egypt, and it's just the right timing for a famine to hit his family out in the wilderness, and they have to come to Egypt for help. So Joseph, used by God, what man intended for evil, God uses for good because God is faithful, and through Joseph, he saves his people just like he saved Noah in that ark. But then they grow too big, and Pharaoh in Egypt gets a little uncomfortable, so he enslaves the people. He's still uncomfortable because they're still growing, and they, they may take over. So he decides to kill all the firstborn sons. In this dark scene in the story, they're thrown into the river. And this, this twist of irony by the author, one child, one boy, in that same river, floats in a basket into the, the palace of the Pharaoh and into the family of the Pharaoh, a Hebrew boy. And he's, again, exalted to be a king. His name is Moses. Moses, a, a prince of Egypt. It's a good cartoon. Moses doesn't see himself fit to be a king when he realizes who he truly is. So he runs in fear into the wilderness, back where the people once were. And this crazy scene happens where he encounters this burning tree that's not being consumed by the flames. And the voice of the Lord speaks through that tree to Moses. And he tells him, you're going to go back into Egypt and you're going to get my people out of slavery. He was like, well, they're not going to believe me. Who am I going to tell them sent me? And for the first time in the story, God gives his intimate name to his people. And he says, I am sent you. Because this is the truest story of all. I don't have to have a name. It's just, I am. I am the one. I am the, the author. I wrote all of this, all mine. And you are chosen by me. And I'm with you in rescuing my people. So he goes. I have to skip a lot. Crazy things happen. They're leaving Egypt now. <laughs> and they're into the wilderness again. And God seeks to clarify the same promise he gave Abraham. He wants to clarify it to Moses. And the way he clarifies it is through a lot of confusing law and ceremonies, and rituals. If you've read Leviticus, you know it's not very clear, but God uses this to clarify to Moses what he's doing. The rebellion increases as the law is put in place. In fact, immediately they're worshiping idols in the wilderness, having just been led out of slavery. They just don't trust God. And so they die in the wilderness, even Moses, except for the new generation, the ones who were never in Egypt, Joshua was chosen to lead them into the land that was promised to the people of God, and he does it. But the cycles of rebellion and distrust continue. They do whatever they want. They do whatever feels right. For hundreds of years, generation after generation, lying and cheating and killing, destruction and dysfunction, but still a family, God's family. 
He remains faithful even when they're not. And the, and the plot thickens. And then we have this season of judges, these sort of tribal leaders. They're chosen by God to not be rulers and kings, but judges who correct them. This course correction is happening. And, they, and they're used by God to conquer some of the evil nations because there's people in that land they just entered. And God begins to take the land back for his people even in this dark, dark season of Israel's life. The promises and the laws are lost in this season. They seem to be resorting, resorting in this distortion, this confusion, this lost perspective of who God is and what he's doing. The people are far from who they ought to be. God is still blessing them because he's faithful, but they're certainly not being a blessing to the nations. They're taking in what the nations are offering. They're worshiping their gods and their idols. Yet they know where they should be. And so they think, we need a king. That's what's going to help us. Totally missing God is their king. Somehow totally missing that he has been faithful through all of this. That he has everything they need. If they would just look to him and remember the promise and see his faithfulness. But instead they think they need a king. And they, they gain a king. God being the faithful God he is, you don't know what you don't know, so he gives them what they think they want. And Saul is installed as a king, blessed by Samuel, the son of Hannah. And Hannah, through the midst of this season of the judges, when everything was dark, Hannah knew. And God used Hannah to bring about Samuel, the final prophet, or the prophet following following Moses, the final judge, and the high priest. The priests aren't much because they all are wicked in various ways, but the priests are the ones who go before God on behalf of the people. So this prophet, this, this priest, this judge, Samuel, anoints Saul as king, and Saul does a horrible job. He does some good things, but not really worth looking at because Saul is about Saul. And you see that even more so when David enters the story and this little boy kills a giant. Saul's intimidated. And they, they have this stressful relationship. But David continues to be faithful, trusting God, even as Saul tries to hunt him down. He continues to trust God. And David is a man who wants God's heart. This has been missing all along. David is a man who's after God's heart, not God's throne. David is a man who wants to be known by God, and he wants people, the people of God, to know God. And he reaches this peak in, in the kingdom where he finally has conquered the land. He brings the Ark of the Covenant that we didn't talk about, where God's presence dwells back to the people of God on Zion in Jerusalem, the promised land. All is going well. This is where David dances naked in the streets because he's so happy. And this is when he decides, I need to build God a temple. He can't stay in this tent anymore. Which brings us back to this story. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pause it there. A bit of a cliffhanger because it's about to go bad again. But let's just stay on this mountaintop on Zion for a moment. Remember Psalm 2, there's a king on Zion. It's not David. Perhaps it's David's son because that's what it sounded like in the promise. But David's son Solomon seeks wisdom and he gets it. But he doesn't seek the heart of God. And it's evident, and he gives his heart to countless women. 
and of these other tribes, these other nations, and he brings their idols in. Sorry, I told you we're going to pause. We really are. It goes bad, though. I'm going to let Matt pick it up there. But I want to zoom back out, and I want to consider these promises. My phone died, so I don't know how long I've been going, but Ben says I'm good. I want to go back and, and zoom in on these promises. This is, this is going to bring us to where we need to be, how we need to see ourselves in the story. Let's consider the promise given as a covenant. God uses covenant. The creator uses covenant to engage a rebellious people. This author is doing all that he's doing with rebellious actors. If he's a director of the play, nobody wants to follow the script. Everybody has a better idea of how it should go. But God, being the faithful God he is, makes a covenant. And a covenant is so good because it's law and love. And where the law is broken, the love fills in the gap. A covenant's so good because no matter what, the covenant's fulfilled. You have two parties still, like a contract, but even if one of the parties fails, which, spoiler, God doesn't fail, even if one of the parties fails, the covenant is still going to be fulfilled. His promises are always true because he's always faithful. So the covenant is significant. That's the promise. We're never without hope, as hopeless as it can seem, because we have one who's always faithful, keeping the covenant on our behalf. And he becomes an embodied version of that later in the story. They just need to remember the promise. So God gave Abraham this promise of countless offspring. He's going to bless all the nations, all of creation through Abraham. An amazing promise. And he intends to, God intends to reverse the curse and make all things good. Though we rebel, he's going to make all things right and perfect as they're meant to be. Does this sound familiar? This is what God told Adam he was going to, he was going to do. Crush the head of the snake. This is what God told Noah, which we didn't, we didn't talk about. He was going to do. And he put a rainbow in the sky to show him his promises are true. He's never going to destroy it. He's just remaking it. He's making it new again and again until one day it's complete. He's doing something. He's just reinitiating this covenant again and again with Abraham. He's telling you, I have a plan. I'm, let me clarify the plan. This is going to happen through you. I'm doing something. God is always doing something. Do we feel we're a part of this story? Abraham, like Adam, doesn't fully trust God, and so he's impatient and he's afraid immediately. He goes before he should go. He's lying about who his wife is, trying to protect himself. In fact, he and his wife hatch this plan because they don't trust God's plan. So they go off script and they said, let's just create this son because I don't think it's going to happen. It's impossible. I can't have a kid. Let's just create this son. So they, they bring in a, a servant and they have the son Ishmael. And it doesn't throw off God's plan, but it creates an entire nation that wasn't meant to be a nation that remains to this day an enemy of God because Abraham was impatient. And so God reinitiates the plan. We jump ahead to Moses. He reinitiates this plan through the suffering of my people. A new human is being made. A new type of human is being made. So the people of God suffer. In fact, the covenant with Abraham is a suffering covenant. The sign of the covenant, if you know it, it's a suffering covenant. And it marks something. And so the suffering of God's people as a community is ongoing and it's producing something. God's showing his faithfulness. Even when it seems hopeless, he's doing something. And they get free and they're in the wilderness and they're back off script complaining. 
Why did we even leave Egypt? Can you believe they said that? Why did we, why did we even leave slavery? A pillar of fire, the glory of God manifested, is leading them through the wilderness. Moses is so intimate with this Yahweh that when he returns to his people, his face is literally glowing. Food falls from heaven for these people. Out of nowhere, God is providing for them day after day after day, a a daily reminder. In fact, three meals a day, thrice daily, God reminds him I'm providing, and they are missing it. If they don't get it, where's the hope, right? I'll tell you, it's not with us. The hope is that God is faithful even when we're not. God's doing something even in the craziness of the story. And the law itself offers us instruction of how to model his character and cultivate his creation according to his design. It's complex and it's nuanced in ways that are, that are weird imagery that are familiar to those people and very foreign to us, but it's all significant. He's detailed for a reason. It all has purpose. It's holiness, yes, but it's also hospitality and morality that stands in contrast to the ancient world. And God is continuing that work in us. Yahweh is reestablishing his covenant through the law in a detailed way. And then he does it again. Deuteronomy is a repeat of the law, kind of. But he summarizes the law in this way. It's known as the Shema. The Shema, the Lord is one. Right? I'll, I'll paraphrase. God is saying, I'm restoring all things to perfect community with the one God, the triune God in community he exists. He's restoring his creation back into community with him, starting with his people. This is amazing. This story is about God bringing all people to himself. We are in community with the triune God of the universe by his faithfulness, and he's restoring all things. And here's how it's going to be done. Love the Lord your God. Love the Lord your God with your heart, with your soul, your very being, and with all of your strength. That's the law. Love God. It's a lot of stuff, but it comes down to this. Love God. Want his heart. Want to be in community with him. Our faithfulness is that we holistically devote ourselves to his story. We walk in obedience as his people, demonstrating to the world he is good. We are blessed by this good God, and we want to bless the world by this good God's faithfulness. Even when we're not faithful, it's possible because he holds the covenant. In fact, he knew we'd fail, so he didn't just give law. He gave this crazy sacrificial system to symbolize an atonement. In giving them the law, he said, you're also going to need this. We're going to have to cover when you transgress from the law. We're going to have to cover that up, and it's a bloody thing. It's a sacrifice of an animal. It's death so that you can live. And it's temporary. It points to something. It happened. It's real, but it points to something. So from the very beginning, his people have been attempting to have autonomy. We've been attempting to rule ourselves. It's always been the plan for the image bearers to cultivate and rule and establish his kingdom. It's not yet realized in Moses. This law, this this sacrificial system, it was just holding the place. 
It wasn't yet realized. Father Abraham taught us how to be family. Moses taught us how to walk in obedience and follow the law in a way that would do the thing God intended his creation to do, but we just can't do it. So what do we need? We had a prophet. We had a priest. A king. Why don't we try a king? So enters David into the story, and this, again, reinstates the covenant God's making with his people. It's just beginning to add and point to something beyond us. David brings clarity as he rules as a faithful king. We need someone to rule us because we are incapable of ruling ourselves. David shows faithfulness. Now, it's a king beyond David. The promise even says that. It's not you, David. It's a king beyond you. And from that point in the story on, God's people, even today, Israel, the Jews of today, are continuing to search for this king. From that point on in the story, they believe that promise. And they're longing to see it fulfilled. Is it going to be Solomon? Not Solomon. Is it going to be Solomon's sons? Even worse. And it gets worse and worse. It reaches a point where there's silence. Sorry, I keep taking somebody else's sermon. That's coming next week. God has a plan, though. In fact, God is doing something bigger and better than any earthly king could possibly do. And if we catch it, if we can see that it's one story and not all these little stories, all these little principles, all these little random laws, don't get tattoos, says that there, you can't have them. I don't know why I chose that one. There's other weird ones too. Don't kill your neighbor's bull. <laughs> it all has purpose. It's all pointing to something beyond us. Instead of picking and choosing random sections to apply to our lives, why not see the story and see that you're in it, whether you want to be or not? But you're in one of two places. You are either in, in his refuge or you are under his wrath. Because those are the only options. You either see he is king, Jesus is king, or you keep searching for a king in this world. Scrambling, trying to put the pieces back together. Because truly, we don't trust anybody here. We're afraid to even trust ourselves, but we'll do that. We'll try to trust ourselves. We'll try to figure it out. We'll struggle to put up an image of these broken pieces all put together, try to impress other parents. Like, look how great of a parent I am. Try to dress the part when we show up places. Look how put together I am. Try to make sure your kids obey in public. A little evil comes out of you then. You shut your mouth. My, my son's good. My son's so, so obedient. He, he's always listening. I'm surprised he's not listening right now. We put up these fronts, trying to pretend we have it together, and we just don't. And it doesn't end well. It never has. There's plenty in the story to demonstrate it. If you keep trying to build your own kingdom, it will be crushed. And it's the grace and mercy of God. It sounds horrific in Psalm 2. It sounds horrific. He's crushing everybody. But it's the grace and the mercy of God that he would come after you that there would even be suffering so that you would know you're only safe in his refuge. You're only good if you submit to his lordship, if you see him as king, if you realize only he is the high priest who, who makes the sacrifices we need him to make. There is one coming who fulfills all of this fully. There is one coming who 
satisfies the law. But they keep looking to David. They keep looking to Solomon. For us, on this side of Jesus' resurrection, we have the benefit of looking back and seeing praise Jesus. He's done it. He took it all on so we don't have to. Praise Jesus. He fulfilled the law so that in Christ we're righteous. When our Father looks down at us, He doesn't see the evil. He sees the righteousness of Christ that clothes us. When our Father looks down, He doesn't even see the good. You're doing a great job. Try harder. He sees the righteousness of Christ. So we are now free to live in His story as blessed people of God to be a blessing to this world. We do that as we love our neighbors. We do that as we start ministry to care for neighborhoods who no one loves. We do that as we show up in spaces like this to pray and actually believe God hears our prayers and will answer them. That there will be lives saved. There will be souls saved. There will be mouths fed because we just prayed it would happen. There will be education that gives people a life that America's blessings neglects to give them because we prayed that it would be done. But we have a faith even beyond that. Even if it doesn't happen, God's faithful. Even if we fail at everything we attempt to do here and now, God's faithful because he's always faithful. We've seen it in his story. But we, like Israel, we'll walk with him and then we'll walk away from him. We'll have hope in him and then we'll misplace our hope. We trust him with everything at one moment and the very next, we're only trusting ourselves to make it happen. And that's the journey. Keep coming back to him. It can be years in the wilderness, but keep coming back to him. It can be suffering and slavery, but keep coming back to him. He's always faithful. We need only take refuge in Jesus. Abide in Jesus. He's sufficient. To paraphrase Ben from a couple weeks ago, you know I was going to do this. It's not a quote. It's a paraphrase. God is most glorified when we see all of our differences and we're united for his purpose. And if you don't do that thing, you will be autonomous for your own purposes. So let's continue to come back and unite as his community, extending his grace as he extends it to us, blessing others as he blessed us, and rest in him. And if you do that, you can share in this meal. Let's take communion. If you do this, if you see Jesus is king, we share in this meal. If you submit to his story, we share in this meal. This communion meal, we're communing with him. If you are a believer, if you walk with Jesus, if you keep coming back to this faithful promise, you're welcome to share in this meal. Jesus came to dwell with his people because David was kind of right. A tent is not enough. In fact, a temple is not enough. So Jesus came down. The Lord took on flesh. And he's making holiness attainable. Because we couldn't go into the Holy of Holies. We couldn't be in the presence of God. Jesus makes it attainable. Jesus is approachable even by children running to sit in his lap. Jesus is like us. An image. He images God to the world, but he is like us in a way we could never be. And thank God that's true. He enters the world through the Virgin Mary. He doesn't inherit the broken glass. He is a whole image. He 
brings the kingdom as he walks the spaces around him. And he is putting us back together in a way that we, the church, could embody him and bring the kingdom as we walk the spaces around us. He is who we ought to be. And he's making us that. We find ourselves as we look to Jesus, not just Jesus glorified, but Jesus crucified. And that's what this meal reminds us of. We're broken as he's broken. We're baptized in him and arisen to walk in new life. Because Jesus was broken, we are made whole. Because Jesus became sin on the cross, we become the righteousness of Christ. He fulfills the law that was given to Moses. He fulfills the promises of Abraham, making us family. He is the high priest. He is the better David, the king of kings. And he accomplishes all that he accomplishes through us because we're invited into communion with him. So take and eat the broken body of Christ, this bread, and remember what he's accomplished. As we remember him, as we commune with this triune God, also his blood was poured out so the animal sacrifices no longer have to be poured out. A blood that atones once and for all to everyone who would step into the story and believe he is king of kings. Let's remember who he is to the king. Lord, I thank you so much for your kingdom. I thank you for your story. I thank you for your faithfulness. Praise you, Jesus, that every individual in this room has a purpose and a place in this story. Help us to realize it fully. Where we lack belief, give us belief. Let us consider how we are all contributors to this kingdom work that more and more people would worship you as king and find themselves blessed by you through the work of your people. Lord, be glorified in our lives even when we fail. Show us your faithfulness. In Jesus' name, amen.